if I don't know how to pray, I, I don't know how to say something to the Lord? Or what about this one? How, how many understand this? It takes faith to please God. And so I heard that because the Scripture teaches that when I was a young Christian. And I had no idea how to get faith. And I remember, I was praying on my knees one day, and I actually, I think I said it probably this way, because I was trying so desperately in my, in my mind not to doubt. And so my prayer went something like this. Honest God, I'm not doubting. Do you understand what I just said? Do you? Who else understands what I just said? It's a matter of I am working to somehow or another somehow or another get myself in a position where I would be pleasing to the Lord, and then ultimately he'd hear my prayer. Folks, I doubt every day of my life something. I'm frustrated in some ways. Here's the beauty of it, is to be able to go to the Father and simply say, Lord, I, I, I just, I, I can't even comprehend how to even talk to you about this, because I'm just upset, I don't, you know, and tell him exactly what's inside. And here's why I do that. The Bible says that faith doesn't come from us to begin with. The Bible says that faith comes by, oh, my land, and hearing by the, meaning simply, when I doubt now, doesn't bother me hardly at all anymore, except that I'm concerned about it. You say, what do you do? Just keep getting back in the Word. Sometimes it's a day, sometimes it's two days, could be a, a week. I read systematically pretty much through the Word, meaning simply I'll read a whole Bible at a time. Sometimes I'll read the New Testament through a couple times. I've done that in the past. I don't recommend for new Christians you start in Genesis and then go to Revelation because you're going to get blown up with a bad God, it seems, sometimes in the Old Testament. In the 2nd century uh, A.D., there was a man that taught there were basically two gods because he couldn't reconcile the God of the Old Testament, full of anger, it seemed, with the God of the New Testament, full of so much love. Read the New Testament four or five or six times. Go back and read the Old Testament very carefully. They're exactly the same God with exactly the same amount of love and compassion. They were simply he was simply dealing with societies who are far, far different than our society today. God was dealing with paganism. He was dealing with people who are so hard it's impossible for some of us to believe. You go back through now the current archaeological diggings and so forth and find that a lot of these people did some of the most bizarre things you can imagine. For instance, when Israel went back, or when they denied the Lord, went back into paganism, here's what basically some of those peoples did. They'd take their firstborn, put it in a jar, and seal it in the wall of their house someplace. They practiced the most unbelievable elements of, uh, of paganism that we can possibly imagine. There was an archaeologist that was struggling over what I'm talking about right now. How can a good God be the God of the Old Testament that was so full of judgment? And then he went and he began digging in the, the archaeological areas of, or the areas of uh, the, the, uh, the Bible. And, and here's what he said. He said, after he found what he now believed to be the truth about the character and the nature of God, he said this. If I were God, I would have destroyed those people far, far sooner than he did. And it's just a matter of when we understand the same God in both sides of the cross. I hope you believe that. Let's go on a little bit further. Harboring unforgiveness. Let's talk about that. How many have heard this? I can forgive, but I can't forget. And we talked about this, I think, a little bit yesterday. Here's the point. 
the human mind will never forget. What God's saying is when you remember, not with animosity, bitterness, criticism, or a wish to get even, and that becomes forgiveness. And so it's not hard to forgive. It's hard when we don't understand what it is because there's still somebody in my life, a couple of people right now, did we talk? I think did we talk about the the, the Catholic error? They have admitted it to be to error. That's called uh, indulgences. We did talk about that. I love the concept. I just wish it were true. Because right now I would love for Pastor to come and say we're taking an indulgence offering before we take an offering for Overcomers Ministries, and that is all you have to do is put in whatever amount you think would be satisfactory in order for God to allow you to go slap this guy up the side of the head as hard as you can possibly slap him. And walk away with no guilt. How many would think? How many think that should have been in the Bible? I think it would be wonderful, absolutely wonderful. I love the concept. God's saying I got a better concept than that, and that is, and then He shows what forgiveness is all about. And I'm going, Lord, this is amazing because I've got two guys in my life right now. One a business partner, and the other um, a relational person. And it just I can't believe what both these guys have done. Now, some of you have been through divorce. Some of you have been hurt in business. You know what I'm talking about. There's no question. And how, how many say, Ray, it hurt. It hurt so bad I could hardly stand it. I just about didn't get through it. And now to, st- to think about that person, just, you know the feeling? And God is saying, listen, that feeling is normal. But if that feeling is allowed to somehow or another carry out something against that person, then you really haven't forgiven them. And I believe this too. Now, I may be wrong in this, and you pastors can correct me later. And that is this. And that is that forgiveness sometimes is a process. Just a slow working of the Holy Spirit in us to create that element of it's released out of our lives. Because here's what forgiveness is really about. It's not about the person. It's about what that anger and that irritation does to me personally. Because it becomes the poison that eats the spiritual heart out of most people that won't allow a work to be done. Now, notice the terminology I'm using. I didn't say people that refuse to forgive. I said people who, and which is legitimate, but I tried to make it a little bit different so, it's, so, so we recognize where God stands on this. People that will not allow the Holy Spirit, is what I'm saying, to become a part of the process and help us through it. And boy, that becomes important because then I can, if God is saying, Ray, I want you to forgive, then there has to be a way for me to do that. Would you agree with me? And there would have to be a way for me to do that without it taking another pound of flesh out of me personally. And so that's why I want to discover the things of the Lord that are found in Jesus being the hope of glory. I want to find what these things are because I want to cooperate. I don't want unforgiveness in my life. I just want to slap them. Refusing to give up sin. Part E, patience and timing. Oh, my land. I remember praying for something some years ago, and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. And God should have been able to give me the answer in 15 minutes. Days, and then they turned to weeks, and the weeks turned to months, and the months turned to years. I was preaching 30 years later in Russell, probably right about 30 years. I was preaching in Russellville, Arkansas which, by the way, is a gorgeous place, absolutely beautiful part of the United States. And one night, is just before I stepped to the pulpit, just that unique and 
hard to understand element of God speaking to not the mind so much as he speaks to again what? The spirit first and then it gets into the mind so we can understand it. The answer came 30 years later and I was so astounded I have still to this day been astounded by the answer and here's the reason why. When I saw the answers God gave it I could see the wisdom in withholding the answer from me. Tremendous wisdom in the mind of God. And all I could say, through all the hurt, through all the pain that I went through trying to get an answer to this thing, 30 years later I could say, you are God. And you have wisdom far beyond me. And you did care for me, even in the valley when I thought you had totally forsaken me. Not only did you care, you cared in a way that I am absolutely amazed today that the caring there was about years, wasn't just about those years, it was about years that would be later on. God doesn't just care about you and me today, my friend. He cares about us in 30 years from now. He cares about your life from the moment to the end of that life. I don't see that because I have needs right now. I have tremendous needs like right now. I say, I want God right. And I want to say, no, sometimes I have to say, your will be done, because I know that ultimately your will is going to be done correctly. Let's go on just a little bit further, and then pastor's going to come in just a minute. Number 12, the weapons of, of prayer. We talked a little bit about weaponry. I think I mentioned that I have, I don't maybe I didn't mention this. I've been very serious about this verse of Scripture that talks about weaponry, and that's 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning with verse 3, says, actually verse 4 says, everybody got it, 2 Corinthians Chapter 10, verse 4. It's not in your notes. You just want to, might want to write it down someplace. It says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. So if God says there are weapons, I want to know every weapon I can possibly know. Is that fair enough? Because the weapons are designed to do two things. Tell me what the two things are. What are the weapons designed to do? Do what? That's what the Bible says. But the strongholds are basically two things. What are they? So in my arsenal, not my arsenal, in my, in my notes, I have over 140 strongholds that I believe God wants me to, wants to work on in me. Because I wrote them down. It says, the weapons of our, of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Worry is a stronghold. Fear is a stronghold. Unbelief is a stronghold. Pornography is a stronghold. Lust is a stronghold. Unforgiveness is a stronghold. I don't want any of the strongholds in my life. What well, takes care of the strongholds? The Bible says the weapons take care of the strongholds. And so I've given you six of the 52 weapons that I have in my arsenal. They're really God's arsenal. I mentioned yesterday when we talked about it, the blood of Jesus is the number one weapon. We commemorate that with just numbers of different ways. Uh, somebody mentioned yesterday the word right there. Uh, the name of Jesus, praise, singing, fasting, these all becomes weapons. We also talked about another, we talked about the weapon of unity. Where there's a lot of things in my church, in churches that I go to, that I do not like. I was kind of looking for something here. Uh, forget it. It's usually the color of the carpet. Do you know churches have split over the color of carpets and pews and stuff like that? Or what they painted the walls. This is well done, though, come to think of it. I like this church. So now what can I use? I don't know. Who cares? What do you see wrong here? 
there's got to be something wrong in this place. Do you know that most anything I could identify if I walked around? Immaterial. Immaterial. It's simply the selfish element of me, the self part of me sometimes, that just wants preeminence. And what is that? It's pride. You say, well, I don't care for yellow pews. <laughs> Folks, <laughs> I think they'd look kind of crummy in here personally. If the entire congregation voted for yellow pews and five of us said we don't want yellow pews, I would still worship in a yellow pew because that ultimately is not worth fighting about when it comes to souls that need to go to heaven. Is that correct or not? And so I'm not going to argue over it. However, if somebody says you can get to Jesus outside, uh, like Oprah Winfrey is saying right now, you can get to the Father outside of Jesus. Do you know that's what she's preaching? I heard it today. Heard her say it today. Then I've got a problem. Now, I'm not going to throw stones at Oprah Winfrey, but I'm going to tell you, her doctrine is wrong if you believe the Word of God. Are you with me on that? That I have to stand against. If somebody comes in amongst us and begins to say that uh, the shed blood of Jesus Christ is not that which ultimately deals with sin, I want to say there's not one scripture and there's not two scriptures, not three scriptures, not four scriptures, not five scriptures. There are probably hundreds of scriptures that indicate it's only by the shed blood of Jesus Christ that you and I have forgiveness of sins. How many believe that? That is an absolute. There's no question about that. So we want to practice unity, and of course there's others as well. But down to the need for faith. I've already talked about that. You can look at it. Number 14 on page 9. I want you to take a look at that carefully on your own. Number 15. Number 15. Probably, I, see if I've got my if I've got it in my Bible. Let me give you. That's not where I'm at. Let me give you six things that are characteristics of what I believe to be incorrect when it comes to the will of God. First of all, in your notes, notice that there are several things that must be in line in order for God's will to be done. And, and here's kind of the point where I'm at right now. Uh, people come every once in a while and say, God told me. How many have run across that? How many believe that God does tell people things, maybe times to tell other people? I believe there's times when my God spoke into my heart and said, you know, Ray, you need to deal better with your children. Or you need to do this. But most of my experience in this realm within the body of Christ are people that for one reason or another really are not hearing from God, but are probably utilizing that terminology because they want some kind of control that they don't have. And so they'll come and they'll say, well, God told me to tell you this. Folks, please don't do that. If you really believe that God told you to tell somebody something, then use a different approach such as, you know, it's possible that God has shared something with me that he wants me to share with you. However, if this doesn't make any sense to you, what I'm sharing, then, you know, I could be wrong, because you could be wrong. And to approach it that way allows the person the opportunity to say, I'm really not sure that's God speaking right now. But when somebody says God's speaking to me, how can you argue against God? And then all of a sudden you've got a division with those people, and almost always they get upset and angry because... You didn't listen to what, who said. 
You see, what they are saying is, you need to listen to me because God spoke to me. So they're angry because they didn't really listen to you. And boy, this becomes a division in the body of Christ, big time. And so first of all, wherever God's voice comes, if it comes to the deepest part of your spirit or into your mind or whatever, or somebody comes to you, it always has to line up with the Scriptures. Has to line up with the Scriptures. Number two, it really needs to bear witness with your spirit, meaning simply, uh, if, if somebody comes to you and says, you know, I've been reading this book, and I really believe that this book is teaching certain kinds and types of truths that we've just not been aware of. And then all of a sudden your spirit is kind of going, you know, I'm not quite... And then later on, oftentimes you find out it didn't line up with scriptures. Isn't that the way, reason you felt that way? Here's how it works with me, too, in terms of the spirit. Now, every once in a while I'll meet somebody. For instance, I'm, I met your pastor. I didn't know anything about this guy, basically. I didn't know... You know, where he was at all. But when I met Pastor, my spirit bore witness with his spirit. Does that make any sense? You know, he may not be the brightest star in the sky. He may not be anything, but my spirit bore witness. It was kind of like I'm talking to Pastor Greg on the phone, and I'm just going, man, there's something about... I don't know, did you feel anything, Pastor? I mean, I just felt great with the congregation. Last night when we went out, yesterday, how about opposite of that? When you meet somebody and all of a sudden, you know, they say they're a Christian, but you're kind of going, and they may be, but you're just kind of, kind of going, whoa, not quite sure. Or what about this one? See, here, here's my belief. Every single thing that is on television or in the newspaper has to be true or it wouldn't be published. Did anybody grow up? You know, I mean, you're four years old and five, you're believing that. And so I started watching Christian television as I don't know if I was even a believer at the time, but I started watching it. And I think I'd just become a, a believer. And I start to watch it, and man, I am focused. It's kind of like, wow, oh my. And then you're hearing the preaching, and you're kind of going, wow, that is incredible. I've never heard stuff like that. Got to the end of the program. This really happened. Got to the end of the program. Another one came on. I started to watch it. Almost exactly the same format. Everything per, just about exactly the same. And suddenly I'm kind of sitting back going, yeah, I don't know what it is, but I'm not feeling comfortable about this at all. Anybody understand what I'm saying? Just there was something in my spirit that was just kind of... And then I learned later that one guy was right on, basically. Another guy, I think he wound up a drunkard or something later on. And you begin to realize there's something about the Spirit that can warn us. But we still have to understand in, our, in the soul realm that it has to line up with Scripture. It's got to bear witness with our spirit. Oh, what about good counsel? How many have ever heard somebody say this? I, I, I don't need man's opinion. I just listen to God. Where, has anybody ever heard that? Pastor, have you heard that before? Did somebody say that? And I want to say, you're deceived. I hope nobody in this room wants my opinion on anything. Because I failed in my job to you. I hope everybody in this room listens to the scripture. Because my opinion, folks, isn't worth two cents. It's not worth anything. I'm not worth anything. We as pastors are no better than anybody on the face of the earth. We've simply been given a responsibility. It's a huge responsibility. But it's about the word. It's about Jesus. And so when it comes then to somebody saying... I don't listen to human beings. I want to say, 
You just cut yourself off from community. You're a lone ranger, and you're going to be out there where the wolves are going to get you eventually. And it happens every single time. Here's what I want. I may not understand God's will for my life in terms of, should I go into the ministry? Should I marry Susie? Linda? Should I marry? <laughs> I never dated anybody with Susie. Never been involved. Never, never. Susie's never been in my mind. Here's the point, though. I'm just confused at the moment. I don't know what to do. So I go to Pastor Greg, and I say, Pastor, here is what I'm up against. And Pastor perhaps will say something that eventually becomes just a kind of a gold thread through the line of counsel. When I went into the ministry, I was a school teacher at the time. And I didn't know. I mean, I had to give up basically everything in life in order to become a, what I'm doing now. I had to give up my retirement. I had to give up all the, everything, move out of the state, do everything, because I had an open door to go into ministry. And boy, I tell you, that's scary to make that kind of a decision. I would never want to make that on my own. I'd want God's help. But oftentimes, it's a matter of God speaks through his people as well. A pastor friend of mine said this one time. He said, uh, God gives direction, but man gives confirmation. Meaning he con confirms God's will. So I need somebody that can hear as well as I do. And I practice that, but I still only want God's will. Then, what's the last one on that list? Wise counsel. Oh, we don't have time to go through number 16. Pastor, I need your help. Just some thoughts. And that is that six characteristics of that which violates the, uh, the scriptures. First of all, if it's extra biblical. Now, I'm not here to come down on any other organization or religion. But I do want to say that when you add uh, the Book of Mormon to the Bible, you don't get the Bible any longer. I just, you know, if, I hope you're not struggling against that, but that's just the truth. You cannot add to the Word of God. And there are people that believe that you can do that, but you can't because you're going to come up with an admixture. Number two, it's not about works salvation. His works Are works important? Absolutely works important, James said. But that's not what guarantees our salvation. What guarantees our salvation is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Number three, an infallible leader, a Jim Jones, a David Koresh. You know, one of the reasons why I, I, I would share, I, I would basically wouldn't go to those kinds and types of churches. Uh, we've got leaders that we need to be obedient to, but only so much as they carry out the Word of God to the best of their ability. And so I support leadership. And it's a matter of, uh, in, in fact, I mentioned in this church, when I'm standing here and I'm preaching and I'm teaching, Everything has to be, or go through your pastor. If he comes to me and says, Ray, you can't preach that in my church, and I know I'm right by the scriptures, and I know he's wrong, I still won't preach it. Does anybody understand what it means to come under authority? And if I violate that, then I don't believe God's going to use me anymore, because this haughty kind of an attitude says, I don't care what anybody else says, moves towards the element of rebellion, and is basically, it's basically, it's just plain arrogance is what it amounts to. And so, I'm under your pastors now. Pastor Rick is here today, uh, Pastor Greg, and I try to check as carefully with Pastor Greg before I say anything out of this pulpit. It's a matter of what, what comes out of here has to come, be approved by that man. I hope you understand that. So wherever you go to church, you say, but he could be wrong. Folks, that's not the issue. The issue is that God sets up people ultimately to lead the body of Christ. Do they do wrong? We all do wrong, one way or another. But I have to understand 
that the CHP, when the lights go on behind me, even if I wasn't speeding, I do need to pull over. They wear guns. <laughs> Number four, exclusive doctrine. Exclusive doctrine. What do you mean by that? Well, there's a group of us, you know, kind of in this church that we just kind of have a little bit more knowledge than the rest of the people do. And so we just kind of move over here and we're all by ourselves. And I would say, uh-uh, no. There are more mature people in this church than other people, but that's not the issue. Now, in the early church, there was a tremendous problem with this. They were called Gnostics. The word Gnostic means knowing one. They were arrogant, they were heady, they were high-minded. And what they did is they had their little clique of people. And these were the ones that really ultimately had ultimate knowledge. Stay away from it. You say, well, I've got a great Bible class of people that are just tremendously mature, and they just know a lot of stuff. And I would say, great, that's good in the body of Christ. But if they start to get to the point where ultimately that's the body of Christ and they're not interested in other people, I want to say, get out of there as fast as you can possibly get out of that class, away from those people. Because if I'm really a man of God and I grow to maturity, tremendous maturity, I need to be concerned about the least in the body of Christ as well. Are you with me? Let me put it this way. Let me talk about that and worry at the same time. How many in the room would say, Ray, I have a tendency every once in a while to worry? Put your hand up. All right. How many know that it's really a bothersome thing? Let me tell you a little bit about worry. Worry, in a clinical standpoint, from a clinical standpoint, or just an analysis, clinical analysis of it, and a spiritual one put together, is cyclic thinking. Now, if you understand what I'm about to share with you, it'll help you in your worry process. What worry is, is one or two or three elements left out of our understanding that would solve the problem. So you take all of your information and understanding about the problem, and you start to think about it, and it goes cyclic. You think about this, you think about the problem, you think about the possibility of getting out. What am I going to do when it cuts over here? What's going to happen over there? It goes around the clock. And all of a sudden, it goes right back to the very beginning. People lay awake at night, and if you analyze the night of worry, you'll find it was about 10 or 15 or 16 different things, and you went through all of those in your mind, and you came back to the first one started all over again. Everybody understand what I'm, what I'm talking about? All right. When you get into that, stop and realize this. You are missing an element. And the element ultimately will solve the problem. The element will take away the worry. Now, in order to help with that, and also to help with the arrogant element, uh, we didn't do this the other day, did we? Take, did I give you a big, yesterday, uh, the, a plane? How many understand in geometry you got what's called a plane? And it goes off to infinity, just in all directions, take a plane. Now, I want you to visualize that, and visualize it as the mind of God. Now, take a quarter. In your minds, take a quarter. Place the quarter on that plane, draw a little circle around it, put the quarter away, and that's your thinking. That's all the knowledge that you and I have placed in that perspective to the realm of God. Does that make sense? All right, now, I worry because my circle is not big enough at the moment to contain all of the information that is necessary for solving the problem. What do I need? What? I need more information. I need the circle to be bigger. My people perish for little circles. Good way to put it. 
My people perish for little circles. How am I going to get a bigger circle? The word, prayer, fellowship. Say it with me. The word, prayer, fellowship. Say it again. Got to get it locked in there. The word, prayer, fellowship. Now somebody say amen. Do you really believe that? All right. So you start, what happens, your circle gets a little bit bigger. All right. My circle's pretty big today. It's huge. It's about this big. I was talking to Pastor yesterday, and his is about this big. And we're not going to talk about Pastor Rick's circle, because we're all intimidated by Pastor Rick, right? Why? Because he's got this great big circle. But one of the reasons why I think I can walk up to Pastor Rick and have a good conversation with him is because his circle may be three or four or five times as big as mine, but we're still pretty small circles compared to the whole realm of knowledge and understanding that's contained in God. And that's why you say, Ray, well, you seem to have a pretty good circle, and mine's only about a penny. And I want to say, I don't see it that way at all. I see that we both have very small circles in terms of the ultimate. So we're all pretty close together. I mean, think about it this way then. If my amount of knowledge is about two cents out of a dollar, and yours is one cent, you say, well, you're about twice as much as I am. And I want to say, two cents isn't much different than one cent when you're comparing it to a whole dollar. I know of a man right now that got through the eighth grade. One of the most phenomenal men in character you would ever want to meet. Responsible, raised his family, did everything. Was in a church very similar to this church. Would almost never have anything to do with leadership because he felt that because he didn't have a degree, he didn't have all of the understanding, that little bit bigger circle than the rest of the people did, he wasn't qualified. And you know, his circle was about that big. A nuclear physicist that I ran around with, his circle was about that big. But you know, there's another aspect of circle too. The nuclear physicist's circle in terms of his spirit could be this big, but my friend's was this big. Meaning simply... One was much more of a servant, maybe, than the other one was. And this element of comparison will kill you spiritually if you get involved in it. And the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, do not compare yourselves with other people. 2 Corinthians 10, 12. So I, I learned this as a father growing up. When my daughter, Rolin, was 16, we gave her her first car. I highly recommend you give your first car to your kids. Don't make them buy it. But don't give them gas money. Don't give them oil. Don't give them insurance. Don't give them any other thing. Because I had four of the laziest kids, three actually, that you could possibly imagine on the face of the earth. They weren't lazy after I gave them a car and didn't give them anything to run it with. They went out and got jobs. They're extremely responsible kids today. And of course, I'm just kind of being facetious with you a little bit. The point is... You are important to God no matter what you have. If you've got a doctor's degree or six of them, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference to some of us because we're watching eighth, people with eighth grade educations that are doing far more in the body of Christ than a lot of people. I wrote a book on this. You'll find it on the table in the back called The Hidden Price of Greatness. Some of you may be even seen where one of the chapters that I use about Gladys Allsworth. Anybody recognize the name Gladys Allsworth? One of the most incredible missionaries that's ever walked the face of this earth didn't have the education to even become a missionary. 
And so she raised her own money, her own support, and went to the mission field in China all by herself. They may have finally made a movie out of her. In 1958, Ingrid Bergman starred as Gladys Allsward in one of the most incredible films I've ever seen in my entire life. It was called, and is called, The Inn of the Sixth Happiness. If you've never seen it, get it, rent it, get it on eBay, whatever, get it and look at it, because it's all about what I'm talking about. There are no insignificant people in God's kingdom. Let me say it again. There are no insignificant people in God's kingdom. Let me say it one more time. There are no insignificant people in God's kingdom. But your fears, especially your fear of man, will keep you from being what God wants you to be. And that's what's got to be knocked down. You say, how am I ever going to get out of that? You spend time alone with God, and he's going to show you that you have all of the rights and abilities to accomplish his will in your life. At the same time, he's going to have to say, because I put my hand upon you, you better not be arrogant. And boy, what lessons to learn. Wonderful lessons, incredible lessons. And so let's go back and talk about the time that we need to spend alone with the Lord. Page two. Six things, you guys, you keep doing this to me. For exclusive doctrine, did I give you that one? Okay, and the whole idea was that Gnostic, spelled G-N-O-S-T-I-C. You can look it up on the Internet, and what it means is knowing ones. The whole idea behind the Gnostics on one sense of what a Gnostic was, arrogance. Uh, this one, boy, I'll tell you what. I can speak this one now big time. Number five is financial exploitation. Because I so much wanted to share with you folks, again, before the offering, but I just won't do it that we exist only off of what you folks give to Linda and me to exist. If it doesn't come in this week, we don't pay bills. That's all there is to it. Because we can do 30 to 35 of these kinds of meetings a year. Take everything ultimately in 30 to 35 meetings, and then some Sundays only and so forth, and you throw that into a budget that's, with more than one salary, an overhead of about $30,000 a year just for travel expenses and other things like that, somewhere around there. A huge, huge budget of probably, it should be somewhere between probably $150,000 and $200,000 just for a single person to operate the ministry. And all of a sudden, we've got massive headaches. I refuse to exploit God's people. I refuse to be like some television evangelists that I have seen. And there's some good ones out there, don't get me wrong. But those that are just constantly pulling the money, especially if you don't give then ultimately God's not going to bless you. Now, when it comes to a teaching on tithes, I really believe that. But the tithes belong to the ch this church right here. And I believe it's pretty hard to be blessed with the Lord if, we don't, if we're not doing something with our finances. The next one, then, number six, is defective views of Jesus Christ. That he was just a man like every other human being, but kind of a special person. He was unique. No, Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. The Bible teaches that again and again and again. Is that correct? Okay. And so those are some of the things to be aware of when it comes to cults. Now we get into, here's the way that we want to consider now spending time alone with the Lord. Now this is, I've gleaned this from, I don't know how many different sources over the years. But again, I'm not preaching a doctrine that you can actually find in Scripture. But I think if you take all of the Scriptures, you'll find that what I'm about to share with you is true. What has to do with is your time spent alone with the Lord. And about 10, 12, 15 different, if you remember the word I use, is elements. Meaning simply, Ray, when you go to prayer, what do you do in prayer? I do the things that I'm about to tell you. This is what I do in prayer. 
Now, I don't do all of them at one particular prayer time. Everybody hear that? I don't do all of them. I may do three or four of them. Meaning, there's not a legalism that's attached to this by any means. There's a recognition that when we identify with somebody, here are some of the things that we can do. It's, it's just like the relationship I have with my wife. We, we, we'll go out and we, we kind of like to go to, uh, garage, not just garage shows, but antique shops and just, you know, just go have fun. Uh, she loves going to the mall. We're done. I think there's something satanic about malls. <laughs> Let me tell you why. I, I can hike in the mountains. I can hike up some of the most incredible peaks you've ever seen. Down the other side, across the river, up the next one, come back, get back almost at dark, and feel as if some, every bone in my body, my, I, I hurt all over the place, but I feel absolutely wonderful. I walk a hundred yards in a mall. And every bone and muscle in my body feels like it's got polio. So that's why I know that there's something wrong with malls. That's theology you can throw as far as you can get it away. But <laughs> the little moment. Okay, here it is. I mentioned three things. Worshiping the Lord on page 2. Part A. 4A. Middle of page 3. Waiting on the Lord. And then three things under that. And then talking to the Lord. The Bible says in Psalm 29, verse 2, it's in your notes and you can read right along with me, bottom of the page 2. It says, Give unto the Lord the glory due his name. Page 2. Worship the Lord. Let's say it again. Worship the Lord. And then it goes on to say, In the beauty of what? Holiness. And so, is worship or can worship or should worship be a part of my prayer? Absolutely. Now, here's what bothered me as a young Christian. People would tell me what to do, but they wouldn't tell me how to do it. And that was tremendously frustrating. And so I want to kind of suggest to you, here's a good way to do it. Number one is praise. And then a definition for praise. Praise is to declare God's attributes. Already, I don't know how many times I praised the Lord today in prayer. I'll just stop and say, Lord... I thank you for your goodness to me. What am I declaring at that point? The goodness of God. And, and, and sometimes it's just, Lord, I just thank you for your mercy. And a lot of times I don't maybe go through these, but today I feel very grateful to God today. And I'm not even sure why. Things aren't going particularly good or bad or anything like that. It's just a, something resonating deep inside of me that is saying, Wow, I just sense, Lord, that you're good. Now, I want to make sure I make that a declaration. And so I declare it. You say, how do you... Now, I'm talking about being alone with God. Now, there are some churches that we go to, the whole congregation declares out loud the goodness of God, the, uh, the pr praise and worship and so forth, and it just it all goes up together. There are other churches that don't do that. In my prayer time, I'm learning to do this, and that is alone now where nobody hears me necessarily, I pray mostly, perhaps, um, without saying anything, but a lot of times I'm just saying, Lord, I worship you, I praise you, out loud, out loud. And I find that seems to enhance my prayer a whole lot more when I talk out loud. <laughs> I tell you this, years ago it just scared, to, scared me to, you can't believe how, I, I don't know God, and somebody says, you need to pray, and so I go to prayer and I start saying, dear God, out loud. And all of a sudden I'm kind of going, there isn't anybody here to talk to. What am I doing? You know, I'm talking to myself. And then I, I had to realize, no, I'm talking to the Most High God, who is real, whether I sense it or not in my 
soul, I know in my heart that he is real. And more and more that comes that way. So I'll say, Lord, you are good, you are kind, you are merciful. I'll say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, the reason I use the terminology is not because I've been around another church that ultimately does that. It's because that's what the Bible says. The Bible uses this terminology. You'll find that King David especially, this guy is always saying such things as, blessed be the name of the Lord. God, you're a good God. You're a merciful God. You're a kind God. But then he lets his heart out. God, I don't understand why you're not around today. God, I don't understand where you've gone. I don't understand what my sin is. I don't understand why my, my, my friends and my neighbors and my relatives are all against me today. And so at that particular time now, he's gone into what's called confession. It's just a matter of pouring his heart out to the Lord, as we already talked about. And so under number one, this is what I do now. And the scripture says, I will call upon the Lord. I will do what? I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be told that he is good, he is kind, he is mercy, his mercy endures forever, he's full of grace, he has faithfulness, and he's love. Everybody get the point. But I do it audibly, a lot, not always. Number two, at the top of the page, singing. This is a means, or a method, or a vehicle for praising God. Now, I, I, I hope nobody takes issue with this. If you do, that's all right. But here's what I believe. I believe that, that, uh, that some of the modern things that, that, that we have available to us today, um, everything from a record player up to an iPod, are, are usable before the Lord in prayer. So I take my iPod, and you know I've got some really good songs on it uh, that I want to use in, in prayer. No Beatles songs. And not even any... Um, uh, the Statler Brothers, which... How many remember the Statler Brothers? Anybody old enough to remember the Statler Brothers? Oh, my. Can you remember the Statler Brothers? Go home and type in Statler Brothers. Oh, man, those guys could sing. How many like old quartets? Here, here's the point. I, I've come across some excellent worship music that when I listen to it, it just puts me in the frame of wanting to be closer to the Lord. Man, I push that iPod button and I just listen to it and it just creates something of worship in me. I want to be a worshiper. Let me say it again. I want to be a worshiper. You say, what does that mean? Well, it used to be that it was just kind of, you just kind of, just kind of a frame of mind. Now I'm coming more to the point where I just want my whole being somehow or another to be expressed unto the Lord in worship. Just kind of like at a football game. I don't know if you gals can identify with this, but you really be, ought to be able to do this. This is just, this is not a man thing. This is a God thing. <laughs> I'm kidding you. How many would go to a sports event and yell and scream? You know, I want to turn that into something about my God. Am I making any sense? This, you know, just in a decent and scriptural way, I want to do it. Not just with my mind blown out because I saw somebody else doing it. Okay. Then Thanksgiving. I was preaching in, probably 25, 6, 7 years ago, I was preaching in... Um, the uh, Fort Worth area, Dallas-Fort Worth area. I remember this so clearly. But because I was teaching on prayer, and it was about this spot in the seminar, and I taught on Thanksgiving, and then, at, then there was a break. And during the break, this beautiful young lady, she's about 20, 21, 22, 23, really, really nice-looking lady came up, and she's just bubbly as she could possibly be. And she's saying, you know, I've just been going back over my, my, uh, my life and just thanking God for all the good things that have taken place. She so nailed me. 
I almost want to say, Pastor, have you ever been preaching and just your own sermon nailed you? Oh, my. You say, why did she nail you? Folks, the tendency for most of us is that we think about the past, we complain about all the bad things that have happened. And she was saying, no, I'm thanking God for all the good things that have happened. Changed my life at that moment. I made a commitment 20, about 27 years ago now that if I ever look back, it wouldn't be to complain. I talk about my father, the fact I didn't have much of a father when I grew up. talk about a lot of things that were realities in my life, no complaints. I will not complain about my past. I will not do it. Because Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind, I press forward. Jesus said, right, I want to counsel your past in terms of your sin and all that was sinned against you as well. Not only what you did wrong, but what somebody did wrong to you. I will counsel that. So that if you have memories, it's not about ultimately what hurt you so bad that caused you to have trouble as you grew up. I canceled all of that. Man, I started living a completely different life. I mean, it was so radical that I think people begin to notice it almost right away. I remember somebody walked up and said, Ray, there's something different about you. And I, was, I couldn't think of anything except that that one commitment, I will not go back and complain about my past. I'll press forward for all the good things that are yet ahead. How many are with me on that? That, my friend, is biblical to do. And then I asked this young lady where she... I mean, she had the deepest Texas drawl you could possibly imagine. I mean, this is Texan from the top of her head to the bottom of her feet. And then I asked her, where are you from? She said, Oregon. <laughs> All right, notice now how powerful the verse I've given you under Thanksgiving is. This is incredible verse of Scripture. It says, be anxious for... Yeah, you know what God's doing? He put a double-barrel shotgun right up there at that particular problem that's got all of us somehow or another upside down at times. And he is saying, be anxious for nothing. And I say, Ray, how do you do that? Word, prayer, and fellowship. You just keep going. God's going to erase it out of your life more and more. But in everything, by what? By believing in prayer. No. By thinking about prayer. No. But by prayer and supplication. Let me give it to you out of the Beeson Bible without complaining. Because Thanksgiving is really the opposite of complaining. Just look. How many have got to Thanksgiving Day and actually complained all day because the turkey was cold, the people didn't arrive on time, everything went wrong? What an oxymoron that happens to be. I would say, nah, nah. You say, Ray, do you still have trouble in these areas? My friend, I do. I have not come to perfection. What I've come to is the joy of the Lord that I know that God will make me different in the days ahead because he's capable of doing that. Then there's waiting upon the Lord. You say, what is that all about? Well, what does the word wait mean? What do you think? When the Bible says, here's what the Bible says, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. What does that mean? Keep going. Okay, keep going. Nobody's answered it yet. Great thoughts. All of them good. Nobody said it yet. What does it mean to wait on the Lord? Come on, help me out. You guys aren't getting it. What? You're close. I mean, I think these are perfect. They're, they're excellent. But what does it mean to wait on the Lord? What did you say? Excellent. But we haven't got it yet. 
You're the closest. I, I, I'm not trying to play with your play games. To wait, friend, means to wait. That's all it means. When I discovered that, here's what it helped me to do. It helped me to take my time alone with the Lord without feeling I had to say anything necessarily when it would have just been something I had to work up to begin with. And so what I did is I just discovered that God doesn't mind at all. If you and I just go sit or kneel and not feel like we have to say a single thing, well, it just released the, the frustration, the stress. And so I spend a lot of time just waiting. You say, that's all you do? Sometimes I have my Bible in my lap and I'll read a little bit of Scripture. Other times I simply hit the iPod button. Times in which it may be just a matter of, Lord, I, just, I, I don't even want to be here. How many have ever been honest with the Lord? You just told me, you know. God, I just, you know, I don't, really don't really even want to be here right now. Because I'm just tired. I'm just weird. I'm whatever, you know. And then I find myself saying, well, I really do want to be here. Well, and I, what it is, that's prayer. It's talking to God. You say, but that's all negative. There's a lot of negative stuff in life, folks, that I still got to get out of my life, and I just want to tell God about it. Well, then there's three things under that I think that we can do safely. Learning to listen to the Lord. Do not be rash with your mouth. and Let not your heart utter anything hastily before God, for God is in heaven and you on, the, uh, on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Uh, there's a paragraph of Ecclesiastes, uh, paraphrased um, Bible, paraphrase. Of Ecclesiastes 5.2, here's basically what roughly that verse says in the paraphrase. It says, when you enter the house of the Lord, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. It said something to me. It said, said, Ray, you don't have to worry about talking. And then when you go to Revelation, no, correct that. uh, Romans 8, is it 26 or 36, Bible students? Where the Bible says, we know not how to pray as we ought. Then I begin to realize, well, I don't have to try to impress God at all. I can go here and just sit here, and he will help me. Now, when I find that God does help us, it begins the relationship. You begin to recognize, or this is the development of a relationship. And then there's meditation. Make sure you understand what I'm about to say. Transcendental meditation, yoga, and stuff like this are to be stayed away from by Christians. And here's why. They use a passive element of thought. Meditation to a Christian is not simply making your mind go blank. And that lets something be wrote, written upon it. Because you find demon spirits know how to do that. You say, then what is it? It says, this book, shall, this, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you will what? Meditate in it day and night. Now, how are you going to meditate in the book of the law by being passive? And let nothing in No, you're going to be doing what if you meditate in it? You're going to be thinking about what the word says. And so when I'm meditating, I can simply take the word. And there's times when I go, I haven't a clue as to what this says. And then maybe pray, Lord, show me what this says. Or as I'm looking at it, I think, oh, there's another verse of Scripture. So I turn real quickly to another verse of Scripture. You say, is that legitimate to do that in prayer? And I want to say, absolutely. Absolutely. Because the next one, I think, will help confirm what I'm saying. And that is reading the word or praying the Scriptures. You say, reading the word is prayer? Yes. If you understand prayer to be a communication system. So that what God has to say to me, and he does through his word, is just as important as what I have to say to him. And so I'll read a little bit of the word. Follow me on this one then. What about this praying the scriptures? So how many pray the scriptures? Oh man, I love that. Psalm 51.10. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. And here's the point. I'll be reading along sometimes. And there'll be a scripture. Somebody's praying to the Lord. And I'll say, 
ditto. Or I just pray it. Psalm 139. I'll be reading it and I'll go, yeah, Lord, that's exactly what I want in my life right there. Search me, O God. Try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. Or it could be not even a prayer. You're just reading perhaps a verse of scripture and something just, and you go, you know, Lord, I just want to stop here and just talk to you about this for a moment. That's making God personal because that's what he wants to be to his people. And then talking to the Lord. Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you do not know. Now, I mentioned yesterday two aspects of confession. One of them has to do with sin. That's 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins. But the other aspect of confession is simply the frustrations that we may feel in life. Or the times when we just need a counselor. The times when we just want to express our hearts. And so I'll just go to the Lord. Like I said a little while ago, I'll say, Lord, I just don't care to be here right now. I just don't really want to do that. Because the more I talk to him, the more I find myself saying, well, Father, I really do want to be here. And then I just kind of keep talking to him. And all of a sudden, I'm kind of going, I'm going to stay here for an hour. I'm going to stay here for an hour. And I just feel that the Holy Spirit has touched my spirit to cause me to, to do that. And then petition. You say, you mean that part of prayer that is a request goes way down into the, I'm going to say, yeah, it's much smaller than you and I would think it to be. Do we have a right to ask? The Bible says again and again and again that we have a right to ask. And the question becomes, though, what do we have a right to ask for? Now, if we were doing this seminar as slowly as I sometimes do it, we'd just throw this out and everybody gets to answer but do I have a right to ask God for anything other than what I absolutely need? Do I have a right to talk to my wife about anything? I have a right to talk to God about everything. But then he has a right to say, yes. What's the next one? No. Maybe, sometime, or we'll talk about it later, or I don't ever want to hear this again. If God is who he says he is, then everything I just said is true. Because the Bible says, Paul started to learn this, the apostle in Philippians 3.10, and he said it this way, oh man, that I may know him. That's the scripture we first read when we started this on Sunday morning. There's a young fellow that, that moved to the pulpit. Do you remember that? And he read that verse of Scripture, that I may know him. Paul's talking about a personal, intimate relationship with God. And through the Bible, it's been that way consistently, that I may know him. But again, it's up to God to, to say ultimately what, what, what needs to take place. How many understand this in terms of you've been in a, a situation like, like that with God, and basically God has said, uh, we're not going to talk about it again. That's all there is to it. How many have ever ha- heard God say that? Okay. I, I know the lady next to you said that. that. And, and here's how it happened with me. I, I was praying about my daughter one time who had gone into rebellion. Well, I'll tell you, you talk about pain. It hurts when a child turns her back on their parents, turns her back on their siblings, turns her back on God, and just walks out. And she did. And the anguish that we went through, the hurt, the pain, does anybody understand? It may not be a child, but somebody else. And, and I prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed, months and months and months. And finally it came to a day where God said, I heard you. It's okay. 
I said, you don't have to worry about it anymore. Don't have to pray. And almost overnight, she turned around about 100%. Was back to her normal self. You know, there's just so many different ways that I think God would speak. God speaks different to me than he would to you, necessarily. And so, petition. Do I have a right to ask? And then, i got to tell you a story about asking. Can I do that? Um, today, I was kind of asking the Lord. I found uh, a baseball card. You know, collecting baseball cards? I found a baseball card that's about 100 years old today. And I really want it badly, big time, because I know it would impress my grandsons. But I actually just felt, you say, Ray, do you have to do this? No, I don't think God, we have to pray about everything that comes along necessarily. I think we have to be in an attitude of relationship with him, and that solves the problem of having to be every every little tiny thing that comes. But I, I just felt like, you know, Lord, it's just something that I, I really should become involved in. And, you know, it was just kind of cool to give God something really small. You say, is that small? I don't know. I don't know. You tell me. But it was just kind of fun to say, Lord, what about this particular Say, did you buy it? We missed it on eBay by I don't know how much. I've got to go home and find out. But... And then, of course, I have a tendency, even before God, to kind of justify everything I do. Does anybody kind of like that, like me? It's kind of like, Lord, I really don't want the baseball card. It's for Cody. <laughs> I love the Lord, my friend. I trust you do, too. And then the last one is called intercession. I talked about praying for nations the other day, and some of you really, a lot of you, look kind of surprised. I kind of wondered, Why? Why? The Bible talks about praying for nations. The Bible talks about praying for leadership. And I told you about how I prayed for Idi Amin. Dear God, kill him. And then decided that wasn't right. So dear God, save him. And that didn't seem right. So the Bible calls it intercession. You say, Ray, what is intercession? It's where the, the, hope, the help of the Holy Spirit becomes so powerful that God is actually moving you to pray. And that is incredible prayer that takes place. That's what tears down nations. That what destroys the work of the enemy. That's walking into demon territory and rightfully claiming what belongs to you and me and Jesus. There's times when I walked into demon territory and said, Satan, you're not going to get my children. That's all there is to it. And you say, but that's pretty rough. Now, some of you perhaps aren't oh, maybe aware of that. Folks, I'm trying to be as, as close to Scripture as I can possibly get. But I think some of us are not into the scriptures as deep as God wants us to go in some things because we're just not open to the fact that we have more power and more of Jesus than we recognize. So Jesus says, all power belongs to me both in heaven and on earth. And then Luke 10, 10, chapter, chapter 10, verse 19, Jesus said, Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Now somebody will say, but that was to the disciples. I want to say, no, that was to the church not just the disciples. And we have the right, literally the right, to tell demons they're not going to have this church. They're not going to get our pastor. Because we're going to pray for our pastor. We're going to cover him. We're going to love him. We're going to do the things that are necessary. How many are with me on this? It's just a matter of we're going to stand up for these things. Can I go home? You folks have been incredible. I just want to say thank you for allowing me to share, Pastor especially, for allowing me to come. Pastor Greg's going to come and dismiss us at this moment. But uh, sometime, if it's possible, I'd love to come back. If you'd come back and we could be together again, this would be good.